Good morning, Canberra. Today on Fuzzy Logic, we're talking about changing your mind in science. When you question the facts, when you do some new research, when uh, new things come to light, and uh, how to admit when you got it wrong. All that and more coming up today on Fuzzy Logic. Canberra, and welcome to Fuzzy Logic, your science on a Sunday. My name is Broderick, and it's a pleasure to be with you here, broadcasting out on 2XFM 98.3 on the dial here in Canberra, or maybe you're streaming online at 2XXFM.org.au. Thanks very much to Bruce from Irish Voice for the show just beforehand. But uh, now we're going to make our world from the uh, world of Ireland or the country of Ireland or the culture of the Irish into the scientific world, the scientific culture. And in fact, we are looking a bit at the culture and the feelings around science today uh, because I want to look at what happens when... Um, Thoughts change around uh, science and what's going on in it and uh, why we might uh, change why we do things in a certain way uh, in uh, in things. And I guess it kind of got uh, prompted today uh, by two things. It got prompted by the songs that we had. That was unintentional, to be honest. I, I brought in my uh, They Might Be Giants Here Comes Science CD, which is one of my favourites, and... Uh, Decided to play Why Does the Sun Shine, but that is followed immediately by another song called Why Does the Sun Really Shine? And the reason they uh, they uh, made that second song was because um, there were some mistakes in the first one. And like any good scientists, although uh, they might be giants, are artists, but they do appreciate uh, good science uh, as well... Uh, they decided that, well, if they got some facts wrong, they better address it. And uh, so they, excuse me, they uh, they made a second song there to address the facts that they got wrong. So that was one thing that prompted it. And then another thing that prompted it this week was reading uh, a story that came out uh, on the ABC about uh, some falsified or fake news in science, uh, which is a pretty uh, damning report and a pretty huge thing uh, because a lot of what we have in science is uh, proven by scientific results, uh, but it's also uh, proven by the ethics and uh, the work of the scientists who believe that they are... Uh, holding themselves to high accord and conducting their research uh, in a proper way. And, of course, there is also the replication as well, and, and most uh, science is replicated uh, to help us uh, see what uh, what 
whether the what happened was just a coincidence or whether it can be replicated in the lab and therefore is, is well established. Uh, but the, the story that came out this week was around uh, some night parrot research happening uh, around Australia. And uh, the night parrot, for those who don't know, is a, is a rare bird. Uh, it's a green and a black bird found out in the wild and it's quite elusive um, this this parrot indeed. Uh, it was found in uh, 2013 by a, a gentleman called John Young who claimed to have found it uh, and hadn't been seen, this bird hadn't been seen in more than a century. So John Young became a bit of a hero among bird watchers for this. Uh, but then it was found uh, later on that uh, some huge, uh, some further research that he did was actually fake. Um and so uh, if we go into the details here, uh, when uh, Mr Young was employed as a senior ecologist with the Australian Wildlife Conservancy, he, uh, he found the, uh, the parrot back in 2013. And then following that, he uh, said to have recorded the sound of a night parrot in South Australia. Uh, so he first found the night parrot, I beg your pardon, in uh, Queensland, uh, but then was said to have uh, recorded it in South Australia at uh, South Australia's Calamarina Wildlife Sanctuary and then found a feather in that same location and uh, also during a visit to Queensland's Dermantina National Park photographed eggs allegedly belonging to the bird. Uh, but just recently an independent panel hired by the Australian Wildlife Conservancy has uh, been scrutinising this work and is calling into question all these assertions um, that uh, Mr Young has made. Uh, and on the balance of probabilities and the evidence they have available, uh, the panel has decided that uh, they were artificial eggs that have been found and uh, the feather was also false, uh, which is a pretty uh, crazy idea um, because uh, it's going to take a lot to build up trust again in uh, the Australian Wildlife Conservancy, who previously had been sticking by uh, John Young's work. Uh, so it's, there's some, some interesting stuff indeed because uh, the initial sighting that Jong Young did have was, uh, was true. Uh, that one was quite, uh, quite genuine. Uh, but then uh, the further sightings uh, weren't. Um, and so there needs to be a bit more uh, scientific integrity uh, that needs to be built up again. Uh, and uh, the, one of the members of the panel actually said, without scientific integrity, we've got nothing. Scientific integrity is the thing that underpins humanity. And I think that's quite true um, here. And so we have to take the scientist's word for it uh, until we can prove it otherwise. And uh, with lab experiments and that sort of thing, it's quite easy to try and or relatively easy to try and replicate experiments. Uh, but in the field, it, uh, it can be difficult to... Um, to believe uh, what uh, what's seen without genuine proof. And so uh, it does rely on the integrity of scientists as well as uh, building up that genuine proof indeed. So, look, that kind of prompted some things in my head and I was thinking about uh, the way science actually is and, and that whole philosophy of science and what we do. And so I thought, well, look, maybe we can talk about that today uh, and how uh, facts change and things differ uh, when we prove them wrong. 
And so one of the first examples that I actually wanted to give of that was talking about my own personal research, which I don't think I've done on Fuzzy Logic before. Uh, and so I thought, well, how have I not done that in my uh, 10 years almost on Fuzzy? Uh, so I thought, well, look, it's time to talk about my research. I don't do much research anymore. I tend to uh, talk about science to other people and try and get uh, young people involved in it, but I don't conduct any research myself. But back in 2008... I was studying at Flinders University and uh, doing some honours research and uh, my honours was based around forensic chemistry. That had been my undergraduate study and I decided that uh, when I got into my honours research, my supervisor had a range of work around ink. Uh, yes, pen ink. Uh, you might think ink uh, could be pretty boring, uh, but I thought, no, this is, this is quite interesting. Ink's an interesting chemical. I'm going to go and study inks. And so that's what I did. And in fact, the the focus of my project initially was how inks age over time. Uh, and so I wanted to uh, study that and, and work out what goes on with the inks and how we can tell how long an ink's uh, been on a bit of paper. If we put that in a forensic content context, the idea is that we can tell uh, whether a piece of uh, text had been written on a piece of paper recently or in the much distant past or whether different uh, inks were written at different times on a piece of paper. And so it's... Uh, it seemed like a quite a good project for me. Uh, and so I look, investigated different methods that you could do that with. And I, I found a range out there uh, investigating in, in different ways. And some were looking at the solvent in inks and how uh, they change over time. Uh, so you can tell when uh, a pen ink was uh, pen ink was written based on the amount of solvent in there because the solvent uh, is designed to help the ink flow across the ball if we're talking about a ballpoint pen or flow onto the page. But then once it's on the page, the solvent disappears and the ink remains in place. And so uh, I thought about looking at that. Um, but a lot of the research, uh, there was a lot of research around that already. Uh, it wasn't uh, particularly conclusive stuff, and so I didn't follow that one up. And instead, I actually looked at the dye component of the ink and how that changes over time. Because uh, dye, dyes are actually uh, interesting organic compounds uh, that we have, and they're quite uh, large compounds often uh, with rings in them um, and those rings help absorb the light in different ways so we get the beautiful colours that we get and inks uh, use different dyes so there's a range of blue dyes used in different blue pens uh, black pens often use blue pens mixed with other colours or sometimes a black dye and uh, red pens again there's a couple of different reds that you can use so I thought well let's have a look at how these dyes change over time and so I planned out my research and uh, set up a range of samples and I used to draw ink lines uh, every month for quite a few months and I used to draw multiples of lines because I had no idea how many lines I actually was going to need to test uh, by the time the project came to an end. Uh, so I was drawing about 20 lines from about 30 odd different pens uh, every month during this project and they're just storing them in different ways. So I stored some uh, on my shelf uh, out in the open uh, so they actually had sunlight on them. I stored some on my shelf away from direct sunlight and then I stored some in uh, by filing cabinet and so I thought well there's a variety of ways that documents are stored let's take a look at how it changes over time and so I did this for months and months and then towards the end of my project I think I started in February and it was getting around September I had to submit in November 
And I'm like, right, it's time for testing. So let's get these samples into my testing apparatus. And to test it, I was using uh, something called an LDI, uh, which is a laser desorption ionizer, uh, coupled with a mass spectrometer. Uh, And so basically, to break it down, there's two parts to this, the LDI and the MS. Uh, And the LDI with the laser in it, I'd uh, basically shine a laser onto my sample. I could aim it on a very small site and uh, shining that laser or bursts of that laser onto my ink sample would actually energize the molecules in that ink. And uh, so from there, I could... uh, make that ink energize it would actually fly molecules off the paper uh what do we do with those molecules well that's where the ms comes in and that's the mass spectrometer and so once those uh, molecules were energized they were charged they'd get accelerated through the mass spectrometer and the mass spectrometer would uh Uh, measure how long molecules took to fly through it and uh, how long it took basically gave you the molecular mass of that molecule and so from that you could determine which molecules you likely had in there so I knew the molecular masses of most of my dyes uh, and I knew that they actually had a nice little uh, breakdown over time so uh, if you imagine these dye molecules as a a hexagon like shape uh, and then on each corner of the hexagon there's different branches coming off and those branches uh, would slowly break down sometimes a whole branch would come off or sometimes a branch would break down bit by bit and so over time those branches would break down and so uh, when a branch broke off it would be the molecule slightly lighter so I'd see a different peak on my mass uh, spectrograph there and uh, hopefully that was going to give me a good idea about how the uh, molecule broke down over time and whether I could see any patterns in this breakdown. What did I see? Well, I kind of came to the conclusion that there wasn't actually much going on. And that's a, that's a really hard result to put forward in science. I spent months, months working on this project, uh, trying to put forward uh, this hypothesis that uh, molecules are going to change over time and we're going to see it breaking down and, uh, and then we're going to be able to age documents by how long, how these molecules are broken down and the patterns that we see from this mass spectrograph. Uh, but what I actually saw was... Uh, uh, There was a result, it just wasn't the one I intended, and that was that documents stored in the light broke down really quickly. Uh, And so the uh, quite recent documents that were stored out on top of my uh, top shelf in the sunlight, there was basically no difference from a month onwards uh, because the sunlight, the UV energy, would break down these dye molecules very quickly. And uh, once they were broken down, that was it. And so it would change within the month and then... Uh, it would be pretty constant after that. It had broken down and it wasn't changing anymore. So that was disappointing. And then comparing it to the documents stored uh, out of direct sunlight, there was very, very little change over that short time period. In fact, it was negligible. Uh, And so uh, I was quite disappointed. I was like, okay, the whole purpose of this project was to see if I could work out a method of aging ink and we've failed. It was very disappointing, very disappointing indeed. And so I um, 
I kind of decided at this point, well, what am I going to do? Uh, I feel like I can't report a failure uh, because you, you don't want to talk about failure. But that's that's what I ended up doing. I did that for a, a huge part of my project was just talking about this and why it doesn't work. And I wanted to share that because uh, with... Uh, everyone because I think that is an important part of science actually sharing when things don't work and try to work out why it doesn't work so people don't uh, try and replicate those results because uh, it's it can very easily be used in different ways and especially in a forensic context you really need to know uh, what's going to happen in all situations to be able to prove that things uh, are genuine and and actually happening and so I did uh, submit that as part of my thesis now the one positive I did have from my thesis was uh, instead uh, just using that technique in quite a different way. And uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit more about how I did use that in just a moment. But for now, I think, uh, let's have a song. And uh, I'm going to tell you how I used that technique after the song. All our exes live in Texas there with their song Parking Lot. You're listening to Fuzzy Logic on 2XXFM 98.3 on the dial. This is People Powered Radio, community radio in Canberra. And uh, you can uh, email us at inquiries at 2XXFM.org.au or if you want to send us an email at Fuzzy Logic, we're askfuzzy at zoho.com. That's askfuzzy at zoho, Z-O-H-O dot com. Time is 11.25 and just before I went to the music break, I was talking about some of my research and my uh, spectacular fail that I had uh, that basically showed that uh, my theory of how inks changed over time wasn't actually going to be useful in a forensic context because it depended on how the inks were stored. And so I was very uh, disappointed with uh, my, well, not necessarily with myself, but just disappointed that all this effort I'd put into my work uh, wasn't actually going to come up with anything new. And so from there, I decided, well, I've got to do something with my time. Uh, so I look, I had to accept the fail and I shared the fail. And I think that's a super important part of science, but it's also part of human nature, isn't it? That we're like, but yeah, but what can I actually do? Uh, and so in this case, what I did uh, was I investigated further the technique that I was using uh, to to uh, identify those dyes, and that was the laser desorption ionization mass spectrometry, the LDI-MS that I was telling you about before. And I thought, well, this is a pretty powerful technique. It's really good at identifying dyes uh, because dyes respond really well to the laser light because dyes respond to light in general. Uh, and so I'm like, hmm, I wonder, I wonder what makes a technique more useful in a forensic sense. Uh, and one big thing that makes techniques useful is uh, if they're non-destructive, uh, because forensic science is often dealing with evidence in a criminal context. And if you start to destroy the evidence, uh, then it slowly disappears over time and uh, then you don't have it. Uh, and and you can't do retesting and that sort of thing if techniques improve in the future or whether you need to reprove something in a court of law. And so to, to maintain best practice in forensic science, I thought, well, can we do a non-destructive technique? Because 
prior to this, my testing had been done by taking a hole punch out of the page with the ink on it, uh, sticking that hole punch into my testing chamber and uh, testing it in there. And I thought, well, taking a hole punch out of a page isn't very good. Like I could take a smaller hole punch out of the page, but you're still punching out a big section. And I'm like, how small can we go here? And so I had been doing a fair bit of uh, microscope work in uh, some of the second year labs. Uh, I'd been supervising them and I thought, well, I love looking under the microscope and paper looks fascinating under a microscope because there's all these fibres that make up paper and uh, keep uh, and it's it's quite a fibrous uh, thing and you don't really see it even <laughs> from a distance, but there's many, many microscopic fibres in there. And I thought, well, those fibres are all coated with this ink. I'm like, can I take out a single fibre and uh, and test that to see whether that will respond? And so that's what I did. I had to work out how to take a single fibre. I tried really fine tip tweezers, uh, but even they weren't fine enough. And in the end, I actually used a, uh, a chemically sharpened uh, type piece of titanium metal. Uh, so that was sharpened down to a point that was atoms in width, uh, although I didn't quite need that finer point but it was still useful to be super sharp. And so I used that to uh, flick up single fibres of paper. So I'd literally put this sharp wire underneath a single fibre, make that fibre stand on end, and then use my very fine tweezers to pluck that single fibre out. And uh, then I'd place that onto my uh, sample spot, uh, put that in the machine, and lo and behold, there was a much lower signal than I had on with the ink directly on the paper, but it was still a readable signal. And so you could still identify the ink dyes based off that single fibre of paper, which was super exciting. I was like, this is fantastic. And so then I started to look at all the inks out there and realised that, well, there is enough uh, differences between many different blue inks that you can actually tell, identify between different inks uh, and what's going on based on the dyes that are present. Uh, Many inks do look almost identical out there, uh, but uh, there's enough of a mix in the, the ingredients list that I could tell the difference between about 70 to 80% of blue inks, which was a huge uh, accomplishment as far as I was concerned. And then from there, I actually was asked to use that technique in a uh, an existing case that Forensic Science South Australia had, uh, which was a, a simple case, but an interesting one, in where someone had tried to edit a receipt after the fact, uh, which stated how much of a deposit they'd paid, and uh, they uh, They tried to change it from uh, $63 to $6,300 to to move the decimal point and turned it into a comma. And and look, in all honesty, the piece of paper was a mess and it wasn't clear what was going on, but but there were various ways that it could have been interpreted uh, based on the writing there. And so what I did was I took my... Uh, my method and tested uh, some fibers from key areas and what I actually found and I was able to identify was that there were two different inks on there Uh, so the 63 uh, initially it was written as 63 decimal zero zero that was the um, amount written on there and someone had tried to change it to 63 comma zero zero and then added a decimal and two more zeros after uh, to try and make it look like $6,300. And I was able to show that uh, the 
that was added afterwards was a uh, done by a different pen to the original 6300 uh, and uh, also able to show that uh, in the comma the um, the tail of the comma was uh, the new ink and the dot of the comma was a mixture of the old and new inks. And uh, this was pretty satisfying uh, because previous techniques that Forensic Science SA had tried to use using uh, different light sources and testing that way hadn't been able to show uh, that this document had been written on by two different sources and my new technique was able to. So I was super excited about that and uh, pretty pretty pleased that I was able to bring something out of uh, my failure for the uh, testing there over time and instead uh, came up with a novel uh, forensic technique for just testing inks in the first place to identify different inks being used. So that was uh, my uh, outcome there, uh, my experience with the world of science and how, I guess, uh, your the integrity as a scientist and admitting when things don't work uh, can be a good thing because uh, it then forces you to look at things in different ways and, and see what else is going on. Well, that's my story. Uh, let's let's keep moving though through into other areas of science that have, have changed or differed over time. And I guess one uh, great area to look at is uh, the periodic table, because this year is 150 years of the periodic table. Uh, it, it might seem like something that's been around forever. I, I know you, you can imagine that uh, poster in your chemistry classroom, the grid-like uh, structure there of the periodic table, hydrogen, helium, lithium, beryllium, boron, carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, fluorine. Did you have to memorise it in high school? I did, and I really hated it. Uh, but <laughs> I, I can still only remember up to uh, element 30, I think it is. But, you know, that's not too bad. But that's not the point of the periodic table. In fact, the point of setting it out like it is is to make it easier to use and so you don't have to remember things, but you can use what you know about other elements on that table to infer what uh, new elements like be like. Uh, but uh, I guess the interesting thing about the periodic table is um, that... Uh, oh, we shouldn't be able to hear that phone while I'm on air. But... For some reason, it's ringing. I'm just going to keep going, folks. Uh, the interesting thing about the periodic table is uh, that <laughs> that's really off-putting, isn't it? Um, the interesting thing about the periodic table is it didn't exist as it uh, is now. Um, as it is now, uh, initially. Uh, and in fact, they were trying to classify the elements for over 200 years, so well before uh, the current periodic table was accepted. And uh, it's uh, an interesting thing to look at. And so it was um, something that scientists had been trying to do because they'd slowly been working out this idea that there were different elements and, and different compounds uh, and that sort of thing. And in 1787, uh, for example, French chemist Antoine Lavoisier uh, was working with uh, a bunch of other French chemists, Fourcroy, Gauton de Moivre and uh, Bertolet, and they devised a list of the 33 elements known at the time. Uh, but uh, those that list was very much a one-dimensional representation. It's like, we know we've got these elements. Here's the list of them. Uh, but it didn't tell you much about the elements or, or what they were they actually were and uh, so 
Initially in 1817, a German chemist, Johann Doberreiner, uh, pointed out that many of the known elements could actually be arranged and sorted uh, by their similarities into groups of three. Uh, and he called these groups of three triads, and uh, Doberreiner singled out triads of the elements lithium, sodium, potassium, as well as chlorine, bromine and iodine. And he noticed that if uh, three members of a triad were ordered according to their atomic weights, the properties of the middle element fell in between those of the first and the third. So, for example, lithium, sodium, potassium all react vigorously with water, but lithium, the lightest of the three, reacts more mildly than sodium, which reacts more mildly than potassium at the heaviest. Uh, that explodes violently, in fact, with water. And so you might actually be thinking, if you do know the periodic table, that in the end, lithium ends up on top of sodium, which is on top of uh, potassium. So if you look down the periodic table, uh, you see these elements that react in the same way, but they change as you go down the periodic table. And this was the... Uh the first interesting uh, work uh, to do that. And Doberreiner's work actually encouraged other scientists to look for correlations between chemical properties of the elements and their atomic weights. And so another who pursued this uh, triad approach was Peter Kremers of Köln, uh, Cologne, who suggested that certain elements could belong to two triads placed perpendicularly, uh, so like into a T. And so uh, Kremers broke a new ground by comparing elements in two different directions directions and again you can kind of see how we're forming a periodic table here we're creating those tetris pieces uh, to go in together to make our uh, our elements form at the moment uh, this progressed on in 1857 french chemist jean-baptiste andre dumas uh, turned away from the idea of triads and uh, started to focus in a slightly different direction uh, and devised a set of mathematical equations that could account for the increase in atomic weight among groups of chemically similar elements uh, but as uh, as any chemist would recognise now, if you're trying to organise this based on the element's atomic weight, uh, it, you won't succeed because atomic weight isn't a fundamental property that characterises each of the elements uh, because of different isotopes and also the number of neutrons to protons do vary uh, as you go progress through the periodic table. So it was up to Mendeleev, Dmitry Mendeleev, who finally got it together uh, when his work started and uh, came up with the formal birth of the modern periodic table on February 17 in 1869. Uh, and the crucial characteristic of Mendeleev's system was that it illustrated the periodicity or repetition in the properties of the elements at certain regular intervals. And uh, that had been uh, previously uh, observed by uh, French geologist Alexandre-Emile Begois de Chancorté. Uh, and the system relied on a fairly intricate geometric configuration. Uh, so uh, Alexandre's system positioned the elements according to increasing atomic weight along a spiral inscribed on the surface of a cylinder and inclined at 45 degrees from the base. It sounds a little complicated, but the first full turn of the spiral coincided with the element oxygen and the second full turn occurred at sulphur. Elements that lined up vertically on the surface of the cylinder tended to have similar properties. So this arrangement succeeded in capturing some of the patterns that would later become central to Mendeleev's system. Uh, but 
for a number of reasons, potentially it's a difficulty to capture the essence of it. Uh, Alexandria's system did not have much of an effect on the scientists at the time. So several other researchers actually put forward their own ideas for a periodic table during the 1860s using newly standardised values for atomic weights. Uh, English chemist John Newland suggested in 1864 that when elements were arranged in order of atomic weight, any one of the elements showed properties similar to those elements eight places ahead and eight places behind in the list, a feature that Newland's called the law of octaves. Uh, it's got to do with the number of electrons in the shells there that uh, we now understand. Uh, but at the time, uh, they just thought it was this octave rule. Uh, in his table, Newland's actually left empty spaces for missing elements. Uh, but interestingly, his more publicised version of 1866 didn't include these open slots. Uh, and other chemists actually raised objections to that because uh, it wouldn't be able to accommodate any new elements that might be discovered. Because, of course, back in this time, uh, there weren't all elements weren't known. And so uh, despite the poor reception, Newland's work does actually represent the first time anyone used a sequence order of numbers to actually organise the elements. And uh, Newland's was sort of that, uh, that first level uh, person to kick off the modern periodic table. Uh, then it came to chemist Julius Lothar Meyer of Breslau University in Germany. And uh, Meyer was revising his chemistry textbook in 1868 and produced a periodic table that turned out to be remarkably similar to Mendeleev's 1869 version. Although Med- Meyer actually failed to classify all the elements correctly and his table didn't appear in print until 1870 because of a publisher's delay. And... Uh, That uh, led to a bit of a dispute between Meyer and Mendeleev about who had priority there. But around the same time, Mendeleev assembled his own periodic table and uh, he too was coincidentally writing a textbook of chemistry. Now, unlike his predecessors, Mendeleev had lots of confidence in his periodic table and he was going to use it to predict several new elements and the properties of their compounds. He also corrected the atomic weights of some of the already known elements and uh, Mendeleev actually... admitted to seeing earlier tables such as those of Newland's, uh, but claimed to have been unaware of Meyer's work when developing his chart. So the predictive aspect of Mendeleev's table was a huge advance, and it seems to uh, that uh, it was accepted, uh, especially because of this feature. Uh, but uh, interestingly... Um, Uh, Mendeleev's ability to accommodate uh, already known elements and build in new elements uh, did make this periodic table very useful. Uh, But of course, it wasn't as simple as that. Uh, Defending the periodic table then became a task around that, and its accuracy was frequently challenged by subsequent discoveries. Uh, A notable occasion in 1894 was when William Ramsey of uh, University College London and Lord Rayleigh of the Royal Institution in London discovered the element argon. And over the next few years, Ramsey announced the identification of four other elements, helium, neon, krypton and xenon, which are now known as the noble gases. Uh, And it's interesting to discover these because being noble gases, uh, they're actually quite stable. They're not very reactive. They're quite... Royal, I guess, is where that noble comes from. And they do stand apart from the other elements because they rarely interact with them to form compounds. 
so interestingly, some chemists actually suggested that the noble gases don't even belong in the periodic table. And uh, the elements hadn't been predicted by Mendeleev or anyone else. And it was only after six years of intense effort that they could actually incorporate it into the table. And now, for anyone who studied chemistry, it kind of makes sense because noble gases have uh, that complete outer shell of electrons, which means they're very settled. They're not wanting to gain or lose electrons very quickly uh, because they have that full outer shell. And so they're pretty happy, which is part of the reason why they're unreactive. But it's also part of the reason why they fit so well on that right-hand side of the uh, periodic table. So it's amazing the developments that still happened over time from this initial idea of the periodic table uh, around the elements and uh, Mendeleev's work 150 years ago. So there you go. So look, it's it's an amazing piece of work and it also helped us understand the atom through this as well with the electron levels that we can see quite clearly on the periodic table because as you progress down the periodic table, you progress uh, and increase the number of electron shells that those electrons are positioned in. Uh, so, look, this work has continued on uh, to this day, in fact, um, as we continue to update the periodic table. Uh, we've uh, we've filled in all the gaps uh, on the table for naturally occurring elements, uh, but uh, we still want to make more <laughs> because why not? Uh, that's just what we are as humans. And so we're creating uh, new elements. And so the most recent elements added to the periodic table uh, officially were elements 113, 115 and 117, uh, which were called Nihonium, Moscovium and Tenosine, respectively, and uh, element 118 as well, Oganesson, uh synthesized back in 2002 and 2003 but only just added to the periodic table a couple of years ago officially and element 118 actually nicely rounds out the periodic table because element 118 sits under the uh the noble gases there at the end and so we've got uh, uh it's kind of squared off at that bottom corner now is it going to stay squared off like that I doubt it. I doubt it. We're humans. We're going to keep developing and changing that periodic table. Uh, but look, it's a, it's a great example, I think, of science in general and how it does keep changing. And uh, that work in there is going to keep changing again and again into the future. Uh, so very interesting stuff. All right. Now, now it's time uh, for some music uh, and uh I'm going to put out a song because I think it's a really appropriate song for what we were just talking about. So I've changed my mind as to which song uh, that we're going to play. Uh, this is Kate Miller Heidke. And uh, because uh, we've been talking about uh, changing ideas and changing your mind, I'm going to put on her song called I'll Change Your Mind. Have I changed your mind today? That was Kate Miller-Heidke there with I'll Change Your Mind. And that's what we're talking about today here on Fuzzy Logic, changing the mind uh, of science and scientists and people and that sort of thing, uh, and how science has changed over time as we slowly develop a better understanding of the world around us, or um, controversially, as we heard at the start of the episode, when scientists try and fake results, because uh, we've got to have some integrity in the science that we do as well. Speaking of Integral science, I thought uh, I'd finish off with uh, a great story uh, that comes to us uh, about the very serious matter of earwax. Yes, earwax. 
it uh, it pr- is produced in our ears and uh, many people don't like it it's uh, doesn't taste good don't try it uh but <laughs> there is uh, a lot there are a lot of people out there who try and clean their ears pretty regularly use a cotton tip or maybe a warmed oil or the earwax removal with those cone things and lighting the candles and goodness knows there's so many different ways to do it but the question is do our ears actually need cleaning it's something we've done quite a lot it uh, seems to happen in the past but is actually good to clean our ears or are they just going about looking after themselves well let's start with the question of what actually is earwax Earwax has the technical name Ceremon, uh, C-E-R-U-M-E-N. That's a good one for Trivia Nights, Ceremon. And it's a mixture of secretions. Uh, it includes uh, sebum and oily sweat uh, that comes out of our skin along with dead cells and other particles that have, might have found their way into your ears, such as dust. There's a lot of dust in the air, isn't there? And so that, uh, that needs to be gotten out. We don't need that going down our ear hole. Uh, and so dust, uh, along with all those uh, dead cells and sweat and oils and that sort of thing, is what makes up our earwax. And it, look, it can be a good feeling to clear that, clear that earwax out. I don't deny that. Um, and uh, it can uh, you know, often look a bit gross and that sort of thing. But having earwax is actually usually a sign of a healthy ear. Uh, it's good. You know, earwax has antibacterial properties, it's antifungal, it's a protective layer over the ear canal. So if you're overcleaning it just for the sake of cleaning it, you're actually going to run into more problems than less. So don't, don't clean it up. Uh, the reason earwax actually reappears has to do with uh, the cells in your ear and the way they behave. Uh, and the cells actually slowly shuffle from the eardrum out to the external part of the ear, carrying earwax and any other dirt that you may have gathered along with it. Uh, so it's a natural conveyor belt, which makes sense because uh, we need a way to clear our ears out. For our nose, we have the snot coming out, and I'm glad we don't have snot coming out our ears too, uh, and the airways and that sort of thing, and we have a sneeze out our nose too. But our ears don't have that uh, that method of excretion, and so they have this conveyor belt of cells and uh, your jaw movement also helps this natural conveyor belt work uh, it's quite amazing really quite amazing this self-migration that happens uh, and so if you just leave the ear on its own it sh- the earwax should just slowly migrate out of your ear canal uh, but if you get overzealous with the cotton tips or other cleaning inter- implements small enough to stick in your ear, you can actually end up causing a blockage because you interrupt that natural outward movement within the ear. And uh, so, look, a gentle clean around the opening of the ears, that's fine. If you stick it down the ear canal, that's that's not so good. So just uh, just be careful. Uh, <laughs> the analogy given in the uh, the article that I was reading was like uh, packing gunpowder into a cannon. If you jam skin and wax and other debris down the ear canal, like when you're pumping that uh, that uh, cotton tip in, that's when it starts to become a problem. So don't don't stick anything in the hole, uh, so to speak. Uh, just clean around the edge. But look, it does beg the question, is there a point when earwax actually needs to be removed? Um, Your ear's natural self-cleaning mechanism is pretty good, but uh, it doesn't always work. And so some people do need their ears cleaned professionally, and some groups of people are more likely to need it than others. Uh, 
So uh, one of the reasons is mentioned above, cleaning it is by sticking in objects like cotton can prevent earwax from moving out on its own. And other physical objects could also block the earwax naturally clearing. So if you're wearing hearing aids, using a lot of earplugs or earbuds, noise protection, uh, that sort of tends to interrupt that natural, normal migration in the ear canal. And so things can't escape. Uh, some people are also at higher risk of uh, what doctors call impacted or excess ceremony. Uh, it's earwax that's causing a problem. And uh, 1 in 10 children, 1 in 20 adults, and more than a third of older people and those who are developmentally delayed are affected by this. Uh, in Australia... Uh, a large proportion of us are along the coastline and so that's when other problems can crop up including things like surface ear uh, or exostosis uh, which is where cold water exposure uh, means that the uh, bone of the ear canal slowly grows and it just generally narrows the ear canal and so that's uh, pretty common in swimmers, surfers, water polo players um, and so that means as that ear bone grows, blocks the canal, and that means a small amount of wax can completely block off your ear. And uh, once you've got that excess ear wax, what does it actually cause? Well, it can cause a few issues. If it's in contact with your eardrum, it can be uncomfortable. It can also cause vertigo as well, getting dizzy, uh, because your balance sensors are in your ear there. And so if you're... Um, impacting on uh, those little spirit levels in there uh, that uh, that help us balance, then uh, it's going to cause some vertigo. And uh, most commonly, though, earwax actually needs to be removed because it's blocking your doctor's view of your eardrum and preventing them from diagnosing what's actually going on in your ear. Finally, it can uh, cause hearing loss, which makes perfect sense, blocking up the ear there. Uh, but your ears are pretty good at compensating, even from a large amount of blockage. So it's, it's pretty rare that uh, enough earwax or dead skin is in there to actually affect your hearing. In fact, you can have 98% of the ear canal blocked with wax, and uh, that tiny 2% opening is enough to essentially have normal hearing. Uh, the biggest reason people actually clean ears, doctors have said, is because of a sensation of them not quite being clean uh, or they've been dry, itchy, a bit irritated, that sort of thing. So if you do get uh, professional ear cleaning, what does it actually involve? Well, look, it depends who's doing it. If you're having your ear cleaned out at the doctor's, they might put in eardrops to soften the wax, then use a syringe or a small hose, a very small hose, I presume, to flush the ear out with water. Uh, ear, nose and throat specialists more likely to use a small vacuum uh, or some small instruments while they look in your ear with a microscope. Uh, an ear cleaning technique often offered by alternative therapists that's not recommended by medical professionals is ear candling. Yes, sticking a candle near your ear. That doesn't sound like a good idea, does it? Uh, but basically it involves a hollow candle being placed in the ear and the end not in your ear being lit. The idea is that candles create a convection current to draw those nasties out of your ear, but there's a downside. It doesn't work. The current created by the heat of the candle isn't enough to pull the earwax out of your ear. And, of course, there's also risks associated with lighting a candle near your own face. So, look, basic advice from doctors and uh, ear care. Don't worry about it. Don't stress. Don't think about it. A little bit of earwax is good. It's protective. It's healthy. And look, if you think it looks a little bit gross, you can clean up around the outside. But uh, basically, just leave it be, folks. As uh, as the old saying goes, uh, I'm going to modify it slightly. You can uh, pick your friends, you can pick your ears, but you can't pick your friends' ears. Uh, there you go. 
that's all I have to say on that topic, which is uh, drawing me to a close uh, this week for your Fuzzy Logic show uh, once again. Uh, but uh, look, we're going to be back next week uh, with plenty more stories uh, for you. And in fact, Rod uh, is going to be back next week and he's got some people ready to interview uh, to talk about uh, what's going on uh, in that sense. So that's pretty exciting. Um, what else is going on in the world of science? Well, there's plenty more out there. Uh, you can check out our Facebook page to stay up to date, Fuzzy Logic. Just type us in on Facebook and look for the autumn leaf. Or you can always download our podcast to Fuzzy Logic on 2xx.podbean.com. And uh, that's where all our previous episodes are. I've been having some computer troubles, so I haven't uploaded last week's episode. But I promise I'll get there uh, this week and last week. Uh, both going to head up there soon. So you can listen to me again if you've listened to this episode and you just really want to listen to me talking again uh, or you can of course uh, check out um uh, the previous episodes there. We've got a huge range of uh, previous episodes and uh, things that have been happening. Uh, look, that just about wraps it up for this week, folks. Uh, thanks very much for tuning in. Uh, if you are looking for some more science stuff this week, uh, there's plenty happening out there. There's a really interesting talk happening this week at the ANU. It's this Wednesday, 9 to 9.45 a.m. Uh, Brad Smith, who's the Global President and Chief Legal Officer at Microsoft, is visiting ANU. And, you. and he's giving a, a public talk called Artificial Intelligence and Ethics, Challenges and Responsibilities. And uh, is, that uh, talk is going to delve into the debated topic of ethics of artificial intelligence and bring uh, a Brad Smith's perspective and Microsoft's perspective on how society should tackle this important challenge. Uh, so really interesting stuff. And that's happening in the cinema, in the Cultural Centre, just near the Chifley Library at the ANU, if you want to check that one out. Um, quite interesting stuff there. Uh, if you are interested in the ethics of artificial intelligence and that sort of thing, currently Questacon has uh, has a um, an exhibition on uh, called Born or Built, uh, which is all about uh, robots and the humans becoming more robotic and robots becoming more human, and you can explore the ethics there. Uh, so you can go and check that out as well, as well if that area interests you. But for now, I think it's time for me to wrap up and say thank you very much for tuning in, listeners. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed this Science on a Sunday. Uh, I've certainly enjoyed bringing it to you. Uh, my name's Broderick Matthews. This has been Fuzzy Logic. And tune in again same time next week uh, for more fantastic stuff from the world of science. <laughs>